It's Sunday, January 13th. On the show this week, political divides and protests across the country over pipelines. Indigenous communities are split on the issue, and as the debate continues, Canadian business leaders fear that it will be investment here at home that will pay the price. Then President Trump visits the U.S.-Mexico border and says he will get his wall. We'll talk to his former communications director about the battle down south over the border. And tomorrow we'll find out who's in and who's out and who's changing jobs as the government announces a cabinet shuffle. We'll unpack the politics of what it all means. I'm Mercedes Stevenson and you're listening to the West Block Podcast. Protests on both sides of the pipeline debate took place across the country this week. In northern B.C., the RCMP arrested Indigenous protesters who were blocking construction on a major natural gas pipeline. The dispute embodies the tension between government promises of reconciliation and the demands of economic development. Terry Tiji is the regional chief of the Assembly for First Nations in British Columbia. Terry, what did you think of the police actions in northern BC this week? Well, it was very concerning. Uh, I think, uh, quite frankly, it was a, a wrong move on, on behalf of the uh, Trans Canada and the RCMP to really impose uh, their will upon uh, the First Nations group, the Wet'suwet'en out in British Columbia here. Um, I, I think, you know, there, there are better means and better ways to, to resolve this issue, and, and I think. Um, uh, it, it doesn't, uh, you know, it really makes a situation worse. What do you think it says about the state of reconciliation in Canada right now? Well, I think, you know, the term reconciliation is, is being watered down and, and um, rather I, I, I think we should talk about the truth. And, and the truth of the, the matter is, is that the, the Wet'suwet'en have never surrendered their lands. The truth is, is that their governance system has been around for millennia. And the, the truth is, is that uh, this uh, land question has never been resolved in, in, uh, in the Wet'suwet'en territory and, and for that matter, a, a large area in British Columbia. So uh, there really needs to be uh, acknowledgement of, of these different systems of governance, uh, these systems of, of ways and, and knowing in, in our, our Indigenous communities in British Columbia. So uh, I think, you know, there, there needs to be resolve here. Do you think that consultation should be a veto then when it comes to Indigenous land? Because the government has said, yes, we have a duty to consult, but consultation doesn't necessarily determine the ultimate result. Do you think that it should? No, I, well, I think consultation is a very important part, as stated in the, the Dalgamuka stay-away case and, and also the Haida uh, court cases. But, but right now, we're really, on in, in the Indigenous side, we're really uh, looking at the free, prior and informed consent as it relates to the United Nations Declaration for the Rights of Indigenous People. So I think, you know, we're beyond consultation and, and I think what needs to happen here is an acknowledgement of, a, of another governance system that needs uh, to be respected and, and also uh, followed uh, by uh, third parties such as TransCanada and also the, the two levels of government, uh, provincial and federal governments. Do you think that the government will override a lack of Indigenous consent on Trans Mountain? And given there are some Indigenous communities that have signed on to this, others don't want it. Well, I think here's a, the, the real uh, issue in terms of uh, the land question in British Columbia is, is what, what do we do when we have an issue in, in regards to a First Nations community or First Nations communities that don't agree with a project, especially a linear project such as pipelines. So I think uh, what we were really advocating for uh, here in British Columbia uh, is a, a dispute resolution process uh, beyond the environmental assessment. 
And I think, you know, it really speaks to, to companies that are um, very proactive to understand and, and know the First Nations communities that they're dealing with, but also respect their, their governance structures. And perhaps uh, the best way is to follow their environmental assessment process and, and also respect their, their decisions. So uh, right now, I, I think in both cases, there needs to be some sort of dispute resolution to, to alleviate these issues. How do you know who to listen to in some of these cases? And I think what happened in Northern BC this week is a great example because the elected chiefs had agreed to the pipeline going through, but the hereditary chiefs didn't. Who has legitimacy there when you have a split community? Well, if you go back in this area, the Delgamuka stay away court case from uh, 22 years ago, 1997, the decision stated that uh, the hereditary chiefs have the, uh, the decision to make uh, decisions on the land. Whereas the, uh, the elected chiefs uh, of, of chiefs and council, band councils, have to deal with the, the on-reserve issues. Now these governance systems, we, we have to acknowledge the truth, I think, is that they, you know, these governance systems were imposed upon us. Whereas uh, for many, many uh, years and generations, we've been following our own uh, governance systems. And, and in this um, situation, the, the Wet'suwet'en, they follow a, a potlatch system where we have hereditary chiefs and, and ultimately if the, the company and uh, the governance acknowledge and, and accept the fact that there is another level of governance here, uh, this issue could have been dealt with uh, uh, quite a long time ago. And uh, right now we're, we're seeing that uh, it hasn't been dealt with properly. The modern treaty process uh, hasn't been uh, able to come to resolution for a treaty in this area. And uh, right now, uh, I think, uh, you know, the hereditary chiefs have their say and, and, and I think um, that needs to be uh, respected and acknowledged. Terry, what do you say to people, though, who say this is about Canadian laws being enforced, it's the same laws no matter where you are, this is the national interest uh, versus Indigenous interests? Well, I think, you know, the Canadian laws uh, have to be followed, but there's also Indigenous laws that need to be followed as well. Uh, this is unceded territory. And, uh, you know, we've, out of this territory, there, there has been a Supreme Court of Canada case, the Delgamooka Stayaway Court case, that has never been fully implemented. And I think, um, you know, we don't see the RCMP coming out to our territories and um, protecting the Indigenous rights of Indigenous people. So I think, uh, you know, until we, that, that is resolved, there's going to be many of these types of issues, uh, not only British Columbia, but across this country. Terry, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. So what does all of this mean for pipelines and investment in Canada? Joining me now is Goldie Hyder, President and Chief Executive of the Business Council of Canada. Goldie, what is your takeaway from the situation in Northern BC and what it means for Canadian industry? Well, it's really difficult to believe that of all the pipelines that have been put through the process, that this is the one that seems to be running into difficulty. This is a natural gas pipeline. There is uh, about $600 million of commitment being made to Indigenous communities for jobs and education and so forth. Uh, this one has the social license, if you will, from all the Indigenous communities that are on the route of that, that pipeline. Uh, it is a pipeline that is endorsed by the federal go Liberal government and a provincial NDP government. So with that kind of consensus doesn't create a positive outcome for a pipeline that's worth $40 billion worth of foreign investment, a consortium of global entities, both public and private, 
the question is, if you can't get that one built, how can you get anything built? And that's a big concern for Canadians. It should be. And when, when companies look at that, what does that mean in terms of their willingness to invest in the oil sands, to invest in pipelines, or for foreign companies and countries to invest in Canada? Well, look, obviously we have our stuff in the ground, so there'll always be a demand for that product. But the truth is, other people also have it. Just take a look at the investment climate in the United States. You know, as they become more and more self-sufficient on, on in terms of energy, they're doing it by having Canadian pipelines that are hopefully going to be running through the United States. As, as one vehicle out, but that means we become more reliant on them. They built 10 pipelines during President Obama's term, not even the most recent term. So on the one hand, you know, you have an investment climate in the United States that says you can come here and get your projects done. And on the other hand, in Canada, we have a, we've been, we've been log jammed. And I, and, I, and I recognize that the government has made an attempt to try and un unleash this or unlock this log jam, but it's not worked. And we really, I think now more than ever, need leadership to be asserted. And we have to get to the issues that resolve the First Nations questions, because what we're seeing right now is no, the nations, no one speaks for all of them. So we have to deal with each one. And that is an, an, an uh, environment in which, how does business function? You have to have unanimous consent from everyone? That's hardly functional in a democracy, let alone anywhere else. Do you think that this is the nail in the coffin for the oil sands in <laughs> trying to get oil to tidewater? Well, it doesn't help. Uh, it, this is a scenario in which the more we, we have indications of, of pipelines that aren't being constructed, the less likely that, that uh, investment comes in in the country. And frankly, it weakens the opportunity for Canadian companies to become more global uh, influencers in terms of how to do this responsibly, which is, which is, I think, the loss for the world. What do you say to Indigenous communities who say, this is our land, it's not about business, it's not about foreign investment, it's about spirituality and it's about our identity? Yeah. Well, of course you respect that. I mean, I think that the, the reality is, is we found a way to do this over the last 150 years. It's not like there hasn't been any construction of infrastructure projects in Canada. But they would so, say that that was against their will. Well, but now you look at it, you actually have consensus on the on the route of the pipeline of all these Indigenous communities. And I, and I sometimes feel that, uh, that there may be a, a generational divide uh, taking place. A number of Indigenous communities are supportive. They recognize the efforts that companies and governments are making to ensure that what is a pipe going through a ground, we're not, you know, we're not uh, clearing out the entire park or clearing out an entire community. It's a pipe going through the ground. There's millions of miles of pipe underneath us now. So we've done it before. We can do it again. And I think there's an issue there that needs to be resolved about how to bring the Indigenous community into the tent, if you will, and to be able to move forward on how to do this kind of responsible development. It has been done before. I think it can be done again, but it requires some real leadership. Given what's happened this week, do you believe the Trans Mountain Pipeline will ever be built? Well, look, uh, it's, it's hard to say anything with any certainty these days. If I were a betting man, I'd say not any time soon. And it's not for the lack of effort. I recognize that a government purchased the, the pipeline. I recognize that, they, that the court decision and, and sort of put a, a, a bit of a delay in that process. But the question is, what happens if what we're seeing now happen all over again at the TMX site? Uh, are people going to be arrested and cleared? Is the army going to be set in? No one believes that any of that's actually going to happen. So how will it get constructed? I really believe you have to have a way forward where leadership is asserted, where people get together and deal with the issues and draw a line in the sand that says, we've done this before and we're going to do it now. This at pipeline some point is going to get built. No matter what. Yes, at some point this pipeline gets built because it's in the national interest for it to do so. Goldie, I know you met with John McCallum, who's the ambassador from Canada to China this week. Obviously, there's a lot of business connections there, but it's a very tense relationship with the Canadians in custody. What did you talk about with the ambassador? Yeah. Well, obviously, I'm not going to get into the entire conversation with the ambassador, but I think it's fair to say that the message that we were sharing 
with him is also listening to what he had to say is, you know, the diplomatic focus is clearly on uh, on the two uh, essentially um, uh, hostages uh, who, who have been taken in, in, into uh, jail in, in China and getting that issue resolved. That's a diplomatic issue and a legal issue and we're hopeful that that happens because their families are clearly uh, suffering during that period. We were also trying to stress though as to um, what potential the business community can have working with the business community in China to continue having the importance of this relationship at the forefront in the short term and the long term. Uh, clearly what took place in the incident that triggered this is a uh, third party oriented. It came from the United States and even the president has said it's something that he would revoke uh, in the event that there is a US-China trade deal that takes place. So some of our destiny is really in the hands of, of others. Um, but we're trying to ensure that during this period the business communities both on both sides um, are able to continue in some extent of a business as usual uh, model and we wanted to make sure that our, our business community are, are able to continue to travel and their business community is able to continue to travel. A lot of business happens uh, with China and so you just can't stop and start uh, every time that there's a diplomatic rift. You, you clearly have to find a way to keep battling through it. Given what's happened with the Canadians being taken into custody though, some are calling them hostages, saying they were effectively kidnapped. Are you concerned about Canadian business people who are in China? Yeah, no is the answer to that and the, and the reason is I think that um, uh, the Chinese uh, approach is to make a point and I think even the ambassador here has suggested that they've made their point. Uh, this is not something that's going to be exacerbated by ongoing. It's not in their interest. Uh, we've seen uh, Poland and others, uh, other countries have jumped in on their own points of view about, about uh, their issues. So I think it's not in their interest to do that. I also think that Canadian companies that have been there a very long time have very long-standing relationships, uh, solid partners uh, that are on the ground, uh, comply with the, you know, the regulations, comply with the laws. And so my sense is that if, if we fall into that trap, it's a very, it can spiral very quickly. And as I said, that would harm Canadians, but it would also ha harm Chinese. And so many of the things that businesses do on both sides of the trade equation are about helping that middle class that every political party out in the world wants to try and find a way to help keeping business going is the way to do that. I understand Canada's motivation for wanting to keep going on business, but does China really have one because we are so small compared to them? Well, I think, uh, well, two things. I mean, first of all, I don't think we can do a trade diversification strategy that our government's trying to do away from the United States and, and believe that China cannot be a part of that trade diversification strategy. It has to be, and that would be a responsible approach to do it. And that doesn't mean compromising who we are. We've always proven that we can be who we are and still do business uh, and, and find a way to influence the changes that, that, that we want to see. From the Chinese perspective, obviously, there's there's a global vacuum that they're feeling with the United States, a sort of withdrawal, if you will, uh, from multilateralism and the participation in global uh, exercises like uh, climate change from Paris. Um, China clearly needs friends, and some of the friends it wants are basically in the G7, and the, these are the ones that they've targeted. And we have a long history with China. Canada's brand in China is very strong. I mean, despite all of this, Canada goose jackets, there's a lineup to purchase them in China. Uh, there's an opportunity to, to, to build on that two-way, but, but clearly diplomatic uh, issues when they arise can, can, you know, can, can be uh, taking you off track. Our goal from a business community is to say, you know, that'll get resolved. We need to make sure that we don't pay the price for that issue for the long term because it ultimately means Canadians and Chinese citizens suffer and there's no one who benefits from that. Canada is now bringing this young Saudi Arabian woman here uh, as a refugee. Her family is alleged to have abused her. Um, the Saudis, another country that we have a strong business relationship mm -hmm. with, but now we're in a diplomatic rift. Is this a bit of a pattern for this government? Well, look, uh, I'm not in the partisan commenting business, so I'll, I'll leave that to them. But I, I just would say this, that the uh, environment globally is perhaps more complex 
more uncertain, uh, more unnatural than we've seen over the last 60 to 70 years. So it's a very difficult quagmire to navigate. And I think one uh, would have to be careful, irrespective of whether you're Canadian or anybody else, to insert yourself too often from a morally superior point of view, because you may get called out on that in your own actions and your own behaviors. And so navigating that is very, very tricky. And I think the government is uh, finding that out and is now going to have to deal with some of these issues uh, in, in, the, in the long run. But that's the new reality. Uh, it's, things are not so clear uh, anymore, and that's part of that muddy waters of the international landscape that I think we have to be sticking our toes into very, very carefully. Goldie, thank you very much. Thank you, Mercedes. For the last three weeks, about 800,000 federal workers in the U.S. have been caught in the American government shutdown, part of the battle over funding for President Trump's border wall. The president visited the U.S.-Mexico border late last week and said that if the Democrats didn't agree to give him $5.7 billion that he wants to build that wall, he would declare a national emergency to force construction to start. So how far is the president willing to go for his agenda? Joining me now from Los Angeles is someone who knows the president well and served briefly as his director of communications at the White House, Anthony Scaramucci. Thank you very much for joining me, sir. I want to start with all of this talk about the wall. Why is the president so obsessed with this? Well, good morning, Mercedes. I, I think the president is obsessed with it because it was a cornerstone to his campaign in 2016. And so he's locked into his base right now, and he, he wants to deliver this for his base. And so when he's looking at the numbers, $5.7 billion off of $4 trillion, it doesn't seem like a significant sum of money. So what, what's happening right now is this thing has become way more symbolic uh, in terms of a fight between the Democrats and the Republicans or Nancy Pelosi and Senator Chuck Schumer, Speaker of the House Pelosi and President Trump. And so, you know, I don't know where it's going, but I can tell you this. If the president was a private citizen and he was back at the Trump Organization, He'd be looking at what's going on in Washington and be scratching his head and saying, geez, why can't these guys forge a compromise and figure, figure a way out of this thing? You've got 800,000 workers locked up. You've got a, a sclerosis that will affect the economy. It's also affecting markets. And so it just seems like this is an ego grudge that they have to figure out a way to put aside. Well, and the Democrats are accusing him of having a presidential temper tantrum. Do you think that's accurate? Yeah, probably not. I mean, in, in all of the time that I've seen the president, uh, he doesn't, he's not prone to a quote-unquote temper tantrum. He obviously has these uh, flare-ups on Twitter, and he's got these rhetorical flourishes that he uses on Twitter. But I, you know, I've known the guy for 20 years. I have never seen him uh, super angry. I mean, is, when he does get angry, it's usually very passive-aggressive. So um, I would be very surprised if he had a temper tantrum. He tried to... Uh, uh, I think he called out Speaker Pelosi on Twitter this past week saying, you know, that was nonsense. But I do know that he's known to walk out of a situation um, if he doesn't think he can get what he wants from a negotiating point of view. I think uh, he once said, I think it was in the order of the deal, and I heard him repeat it on the campaign, if you're not ready to walk from a situation, uh, you either want it too much and you've already lost the negotiation. Uh, or you're in a bad position vis-a-vis uh, -vis the other person. And so he's always been a position anchored to the idea. He's always been a person in a position anchored to the idea of walking. So uh, I'm not surprised that he's where he is right now, but I just think it's really bad for the country. They, they, they have to get together, forge a compromise. Each side has to lose a little bit of face, and we've got to get the government back open. What do you think of all this discussion about declaring a national emergency? Would that be an abuse of power? 
Well, it wouldn't necessarily be an abuse of power, but I think it would be very bad precedent for the president because um, what would stop a uh, Democratic president, say, uh, four or eight years from now, saying, okay, we're going to ban all assault rifles in the United States because of a quote unquote national emergency or, or a national crisis? You know, what I think is unfair to the president, though, is that the Democrats have this talking point out there that the border crisis is manufactured. I think that's also unfair. Uh, you do have an issue on the border. You can talk to the border control agents. You can talk to uh, uh, guys in ICE, and they will tell you that we do have a problem. And then areas of the border where a fence and or wall has been put into place, you have seen a reduction of migration, and you've seen a reduction in drug trafficking. So the uh, president's right on this. Uh, the Democrats used to be for this sort of stuff. President Obama. Uh, was, was for this. He deported over two million people from the United States during the eight years of his presidency. Uh, but what's happened now is that these guys obviously don't like each other and they score talking points and they score fundraising uh, from going against each other this hard. But it's having a deleterious effect now on the government. It's having a deleterious effect on uh, the stock market. And at some point, uh, this sort of behavior will switch uh, economic psychology and it'll cause an economic slowdown as well. So I hope these guys get it together uh, shortly. Uh, this is the longest government shutdown, I think, in history now. And I think it's uh, every second it goes by, it's a second too long. When it comes to the president's tweets, he has sometimes tweeted things that are untrue. He's contradicted himself, like on who's going to pay for the wall. Uh, Describe for me the atmosphere in the White House when it comes to his Twitter feed uh, and being his director of communications, trying to anticipate what's going to come out of there. What is his strategy? Well, you know, I, I never got overly concerned about the Twitter feed. We, we were on the campaign with him. Uh, the president, as a candidate, had this opinion that he needed Twitter to hop over the mainstream media to direct message to his supporters and to the 63 million people that have voted for him. So you're not going to change him on Twitter. What I did find during the campaign, and I was obviously in the White House for a very short period of time, uh, but my observation of the president since he started this in June of 2015 is that when he feels well defended or he feels like there's a ton of advocacy out there on his behalf, he dials back what I would call the non-strategic tweeting. Uh, when he feels he's out there as a lone wolf or a lone operator and he's not getting the support or surrogacy in the media, uh, he has a tendency to be a lot more aggressive on Twitter. But if you are his communications director today, like Bill Shine is, or somebody uh, from the past, we would all say the same thing. You're not going to change his Twitter habits. He's 72 years old. He really believes that Twitter helped him win the presidency. And so uh, what you need to do, though, is to fortify him better with more social and media advocates, which will cause him to dial some of that stuff back. Mr. Scaramucci, you know the president well, as you pointed out. You worked in the White House. What is his opinion of Justin Trudeau, and what advice would you have for the government here to try to get those steel and aluminum tariffs removed? Well, listen, I mean, I, I think he has a lot of respect for Prime Minister Trudeau. I know that they've had some rough conversations, and I mean, he's probably tweeted at the prime minister more than once, and certainly uh, one more than necessary. But I think he does respect him. He respects him as the leader of Canada, and he also respects him for fighting and advocating on behalf of Canada. I think when you look at the uh, the New Deal, I guess we're calling it now the USMCA. Uh, I think I think uh, Prime Minister Trudeau did a very good job. As, long, as well as Christian Freeland in terms of uh, protecting Canadian interests in that deal. 
At the end of the day, the president got a lot of things that he thought he needed for American manufacturing workers. Uh, but a lot of the industries that uh, the prime minister wanted protected in Canada uh, still have that protection. So um, I, think the, I think the president likes them. I think he expressed that uh, uh, in the signing ceremony with the president of Mexico and the prime minister. So um, I don't think it's anything personal there. Uh, they're just on opposite sides at times of a negotiation. As it relates to okay. the steel tariffs, it's a separate issue. Well, Mr. Scaramucci, that's all the time we have for today, but thank you so much for joining us. Thanks again. Late last week, Treasury Board President Scott Bryson surprised many with a social media video announcing he was resigning from Cabinet and would not seek re-election in the fall. Bryson was one of this government's most senior and experienced ministers, and just hours later, the government confirmed a Cabinet shuffle will be happening tomorrow. Joining me now to unpack the politics of this Cabinet shuffle and this week's political headlines, Toronto Star Bureau Chief Susan Delacourt and the Globe and Mail's Bureau Chief Bob Fife. Uh, what are you guys expecting in the big shuffle? I know it's everyone's favorite parlor game to guess, and it's very risky to guess, but what do you anticipate tomorrow? I'm anticipating a smallish, maybe very small, but not more than two, less than six. Um, so uh, I'm not going to even guess here which ones are moving, <laughs> because I suspect that people are being told up until the last minute that does happen. Uh, we're notoriously wrong on these things as well, but I think this was the Prime Minister's last chance to put a new face on his government to fix a few pro problems uh, before the election. And so um, I would expect this is a fine-tuning one, but more than a tweak. Bob, is there anyone who stands out who has to be moved Well, to first you? of all, I was, I was actually surprised that they're going to to do more than uh, than than Mr. Um, Bryson because they last summer they did a tweak more than a tweak um, which everybody assumed was going to be the cabinet they were going to go into the election campaign with. So having said that, I'm not going to make any predictions either. <laughs> but I do think there's a, a couple of people that. Uh, might be moved, and for very good reasons. They last summer they moved Armajet Sohi uh, from infrastructure into natural resources, and as you know, that's a fire burning out in Alberta and Saskatchewan on this issue. And he has performed very, very weakly on that file. And if this is going to be an election issue, and you're going to be going up likely against uh, Premier uh, Jason Kenney, you need to get somebody a lot more, a lot. Uh, better performer and somebody who can articulate the, the Liberals' uh, stand in terms of pipelines than, I think, Mr. Sohi. So that's a weakness, I think. And also, you know, Catherine McKenna, I think, as the environment minister, grates a lot of people the wrong way. Now, apparently she's not going to be moved, but that's somebody that probably should be moved. I, uh, it, it, people have been saying that the difference between last fall's economic statement and the budget is that the fall's economic statement was for business and that uh, the budget is going to be for individual Canadians. And I think you can almost see last year's shuffle and this shuffle in those terms, too. I think last year's shuffle was all, all about putting a business-like face on the government. You know, Bill Blair has got this under control. I admit that so he didn't work out the way they wanted. But but I think this one is going to be very um, lefty or progressive, putting the progressive face on this government. And I think it's they need people to deliver messages on pharmacare, possibly a national basic income. But I think this is all about putting your communicators and your strong cabinet performers in jobs to convey the progressive liberal side, because that's 
the battle they want to fight in the next election. Now, the Prime Minister also announced three mm. by-elections. At long last, the NDP has been chomping at the bit, although a lot on the line here for Jagmeet Singh. What are you expecting in those by-elections, Bob? Well, I think he has a good chance of winning, even though the polls apparently are showing him not. I mean, the NDP are putting a lot of resources into that, and they're having a lot of members of parliament going there. All their resources are going to that, and I think he has a good chance of winning. But clearly, if he does not win it, I don't think he can survive as leader. There are too, too many knives out for, to, for him. I mean, they're barely on life support right now. And if uh, he can't win that, going into the election campaign could be far more than disastrous for them. And I think they'll, they'll be pressured to get him to resign. I thought it was interesting this week that Tom Mulcair said on another network that uh, <laughs> that he would have to resign if he didn't win. And um, Mr. Mulcair knows whereof he speaks. I think he would still be leader if it were not for uh, a, a certain intolerance in the NDP for people who can, can't win or put them ahead. So I think Mulcair knows exactly who would be going out to... Um, seek Mr. Singh's defeat if he doesn't prove to be a winnable commodity in, in, um, in the by-elections. I actually do, though. I, I, I think he might win. I think... Um, I well, think and are, they, are they really an indicator? We always talk about them in Ottawa. Oh, by-elections are a barometer. Are these three a good example of barometer by-elections, or are there clear winners already? Yeah, I, 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 I don't think that we should read too much into by-elections either, but in this particular case, you have to read something into it because the leader is on the line here, and he's, his performance is not very good. You're seeing all kinds of new Democratic MPs who, who, are, reti who are retiring, including people who have been newly elected. They see the writing on the wall. Mm -hmm. So if he can't win this... Um, there's no way he can survive. That's right. Now, Justin Trudeau is out across the country. He likes to do these town halls. They're always a little bit risky because you get the people that resonate. The veteran who lost his legs in Afghanistan, the woman who was in tears about her hydro bill in Ontario. But they must think it's resonating and an opportunity for him, Susan, because he's launching a whole new tour. Yeah, he does them for positive and negative reasons. The negative reason is he does not like the politics here. He has never liked the politics here. <clears throat> he doesn't believe that he won the last election on the strength of the chattering classes in Ottawa, as we all know. Um, he, although he was raised in this environment, he's not very fond of it. So any chance he gets to get out of the bubble is good for him. And I do think that uh, brings out the teacher in him, the dad in him. I think he's very confident in his ability to manage crowds. And and I think it gives him a taste of what he's going to get during the election. So I think he, he likes it. Well, first of all, I think he's far overexposed. He's out almost every week chattering away. And I, I wonder if that is a good thing because you can get if you don't have anything substantive to say after a while, people start turning off. But uh, on the town hall one, I think he hit a home run this week when uh, he was asked, uh, but why are you letting Muslims into the country? And he articulated what this country is all about, is that we're based on immigrants and that they come into this country and they make a tremendous contribution. And I thought... Um, that was a really that was one time when you it really paid to see him do a town hall meeting so uh, hats off to him for that well we just have a couple seconds left but i want to get each of your thoughts very quickly who is in the strongest position right now as we head into 2019 of the leaders mm -hmm. Um, well, I, th I think the Prime Minister, the incumbent, is always in the strongest position. Okay. Bob? Uh, yeah, I think uh, I think he's, the Liberals are going to win uh, unless the NDP can Majority or minority? Uh, probably reduce majority. 
But I mean, it, I mean, elections matter. But the fact of the matter is that if the NDP continue to be weak, uh, that doesn't bode very well for the Conservatives because they need the, a stronger NDP to come up the middle. Okay. And the Conservatives not on the radar right now. Thank you very much to our journals for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for checking out the West Block podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and listen on your Apple podcast, Google podcast, or wherever you find your podcast. And join the conversation at the West Block Facebook and check out our Instagram page. And please tune in again.